Click, pay, and download instantly. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Hashtag Watch Me podcast, the podcast helping business owners and multi-passionates build the right business for them so they can create the confidence and wealth they desire and live life on their own terms. Each episode, you'll take away actionable tools and strategies to ditch imposter syndrome and create the unstoppable Hashtag Watch Me mindset so you can create your own version of success. But this isn't just a highlight reel of business success stories and quick fixes. You always get the raw and unfiltered truth of what it really looks like to start and grow your own business. Because the truth is, you have what it takes. You don't have to do this alone. I'm your host, Danielle Yule, success and mindset coach for business owners and multi-passionates like you. That dream life and business that you desire, it wants you to. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. Okay couple of things before we dive into this third multi-passionate tip, which I'm excited to share with you guys. First of all, can I just say, wherever you are right now, whatever you're thinking about, whatever's going on in your current reality, can I just say, you're doing a great job. And I just want you to know that. I feel like it's such a good reminder (laughs) that we need just sometimes. So if you are listening to this, thank you for being here. Thank you for being you and you are doing a great job, and everything is always going to work out perfectly and just as it should. So just take a deep breath. Really felt called to start this episode out like that this week, so I hope that that just really speaks to your soul and is helpful for you in this moment. So with that, let's kind of dive into multi-passionate tip number three. So uh, I love this series so much because there's so many things I literally could talk about. One of the biggest questions that I get all of the time being multi-passionate, whether, you know, it's someone who has been in business for a while or someone who is just getting started or other people who maybe aren't multi-passionate that I've been interviewed on their podcast or for their summits or speaking to their audience or whatever it is. This is by far the number one question that I always get. So let's talk about where do you start? (laughs) How do you get started? right? What do you actually do to get started, especially in monetizing your multi-passions? Here's what I typically see with my clients or with people who ask me this question, who want to know, you know, where do I literally start? How do I get this started? What I see is that we have this idea of, I want to be able to do the things that I love. I want to be able to make money doing the things that I'm passionate about, right? So we want that. And maybe you even have a little bit bigger dream of like wanting to leave your day job to focus on what you love doing and do these things. 
or maybe it's to, you know, make X amount of money per month to take care of your family. Maybe it's to be able to afford a grand vacation that you really want to go on, right? Whatever the reasoning and the why behind that is for you, that's okay. But here's usually what I see is that we have this goal. We have this idea in mind that we want to be able to make money doing what we love and probably have some other bigger goal or why attached to that, which is very normal. And I hope that you do, right? Whether it's monetary or to take care of your family or to be able to take better care of you and not have to go into a cubicle every day. I know that was a big thing for me. There was a lot of pieces around my day job that I didn't, I just wasn't happy with, right? And I knew that in order to be really happy and fulfilled in the work that I was doing and what I was doing with my life in general, personally, and like for my businesses or for my career, I knew that I needed to do more of what I loved, right? I needed to be able to do my multi-passions instead of just be at a job that wasn't fulfilling me and making that big change, right? That's hard. There's a lot there, but that was, that was where I started, right? That was a big goal for me was I am in this job, but there's so much more that I want to do outside of this. And I would love to be able to just do my passions, just do what I'm passionate about and make money and be able to provide financially as well, right? To take care of all of those things so that I could leave my day job. That was a huge part for me. So you're probably feeling that way. You're probably having that bigger goal and wanting to turn your multi-passions into a business or be able to make some money on the side with some of the different things that you're doing. And then your current reality is that you basically don't have any of that, right? Let's be real. You're probably working a day job. You're probably... You have these multi-passions, but maybe you don't have a lot of time and energy currently to be doing them and actually take the time to even enjoy them, let alone monetize them, right? You don't know where to start. You don't know how to start a business. Maybe you've never done that before. And that thought alone just feels very overwhelming, which is totally, totally normal. And you're just finding yourself stuck between this idea of what you really want and where you're at currently, which is really nowhere nowhere close to having that, right? So it can be really hard and frustrating because there's not really, like, you don't have those dots connected yet, right? They're just, they feel very separate. I know a lot of my clients have said to this idea, even while you're building your business or even while you're starting to do your multi-passions and starting to turn them into a business or starting to monetize them, one of the things I hear so often is that we almost live this double life, right? We go to work and we're one person and we kind of have like, you know, our current reality, our our day job, our personal life, uh, maybe time with friends, things like that, that we have been doing. But then we also kind of live this other life of where you are starting to dive into those multi-passions and you are doing what makes you happy and you're learning through that process kind of who you're becoming or who you want to be and how you can do those things more, and how you can build your business, right? So it can feel like a double life. It doesn't just feel like you're doing all of these things at once. It kind of feels like you're one person or one identity in going to your day job than who you are while you're working on your multi-passions. Does that feel true? (laughs) 
right? Let that just take a moment and just think about where you're at with that. So this is typically what I see is basically this disconnect from what you actually want versus where you're at right now. And just not knowing how to connect those dots. Where do I start? How do I get started? What do I do in order to move the needle forward in order to actually get closer to my goal, right? I hear you. I see you. I feel you. All of the things I have been there. This is totally what will help you just simply get started for this episode. So there's going to be, I feel like I could go on a tangent and this could be a very, very long episode, but I do want to keep this fairly short. So I am going to walk you through basically exactly how I encourage my clients to get started, including how I got started myself, right? One of the best parts to this episode is instead of just being a podcast episode, I do actually have a free workbook and training on this specifically. So some of what I'm going to talk about here is going to be very related to that and vice versa. If you want something that is more tangible to help you really plan out, you know, what this looks like, how you need to get started, what you need to do next, especially if you are more of an organized person or need to plan things out or write things down and see it visually, highly, highly recommend this. But if you go over to my website, site. This will be linked into the show notes as well. I have my monetize your multi-passions workbook and training. This is something that I have had for so long um, as a free resource to all of you multi-passionates out there. Really, whether you are just getting started or you just feel like you kind of need to go back to the basics and just kind of ground yourself in your multi-passions again. This could be really helpful for you. I have a short training that I walk you through as well as this workbook where you can literally go through it and help yourself map this out for you so that you know what your next steps are. So I am going to cover some of these in this episode and then I highly recommend that you go over to the show notes or over to my website in general where you'll find this freebie. This is totally free. I hope that this helps you. You can download it. You can type right into it or feel free to journal, you know, on a separate piece of paper. But this is really to help you get started in monetizing your multi-passions and where to start, especially if you are multi-passionate and you know you want to start a business or two or, you know, whatever that looks like, but you don't even know which choice, like which passion to choose first, right? Which one do you start with? How do you get started in that? This is the thing you need to help you do that. So again, go over to the show notes, go to my website. This is a free uh, monetize your multi-passions workbook that I have for you. This will be super, super helpful in where you're at if this is what you resonate with. So go over and grab that. I encourage you to pause this first and then go grab it and maybe do them simultaneously. But let's dive in. So if you are finding yourself in that disconnect, here's where I want you to start. So number one, I want you to think about everything that's possible for you. I literally want you to brain dump a list of what are your multi-passions, what are all of the different ideas that you've had, whether it's for businesses or hobbies or skill sets that you have. Maybe it's things that you have done in your day job or in other like extracurricular activities or hobbies that you've done. Literally brain dump anything and everything that you can think about. These are all of your skills, your hobbies, your passions, your ideas, um, different things that you could offer to people, different offers that you could have. 
This was something that I started with when I was first starting my business. And can I tell you, this list was like (laughs) in so many ways so helpful for me because there's a couple different sides to this. Not only will it get everything out of your brain and onto a piece of paper so that you have it to go to, right? You can always come back to this when you need to just kind of ground yourself back into your multi-passions or know what you, who you are and what you're all about and what you really love, right? But it's also helpful in kind of giving you a starting point. So as you are As you're writing this down, give yourself some time and space, literally just brain dump anything and everything. It doesn't have to be organized. Write down everything that you are passionate about, your hobbies, your skills, your ideas, anything. Then what you can do is you can come back to it. This is also in the workbook, but you can come back to it and rank them in an order. So if you are more of a analytical brain, maybe a type A person, you might go through and kind of rank this, like which is most important to you or which ones do you feel most excited about or how, however you decide to rank them, right? Go through and kind of rank them, like what's most important or what do you want to try right now or what do you feel the most excitement toward? And then you can kind of have that list a little bit more prioritized. The other way to do it, if you are more of a feeler, If you are more of that type B person, right, who needs to feel into things and uh, if you're more intuitive, even if you're not, I would encourage you to try this. But as you go through this list, I want you to give yourself, again, time and space to do this. But I want you to go back through this list and really feel into each one of these ideas, each one of these passions, and just tap into what do you feel when you read some of these passions on your list, right? Which one gives you the most excitement? Which one really like just makes you want to jump out of your seat and get this started, right? Or are there any that bring up some fears or worries or self-doubts or imposter syndrome, right? You can really tap into each one of those, kind of thinking it through, like trying it on, so to say, right? right? Like quote unquote, how could you try each of these on and see how would it feel to monetize this one? How would it feel to pursue this one? How would it feel to try this out and do it more? And then tap into how do you feel in your body? Does that make you feel excited? Does that make you feel scared? Does that really not change any emotion for you, right? Do you feel just kind of neutral about it? And then take note on that. Maybe it's like next to it or however you want to do it. But then you can kind of see, you know, Which ones are you feeling really excited about? Which one might you be feeling excited about? But then there's also a lot of fear or imposter syndrome coming up, which is totally normal. (laughs) But then you know, kind of having an idea of a starting point of what do you feel the most drawn to for what to start with. Now, (laughs) let me add here because this is something I always talk about a lot. The reason I always say that you don't have to choose one thing is through this list, as you are going through and feeling into these, I don't want you to end up choosing just one thing, right? You can, if one of them feels the most exciting and you want to dive in and just try that one, great, please go for it. I'm not saying don't do that. 
But I'm saying that you don't have to just identify that one thing that excites you like a lot of people will tell you because here's what I see and here's the big reason why I talk about this so much is that you don't have to choose one thing. If you are just getting started, if you haven't started a business yet, if you haven't monetized anything yet, you don't want to choose one thing and here's why. What I see with people especially my clients or people who have come to me after this, after the fact, is that you try to choose one thing. This is also, by the way, where I made my own mistake. So firsthand experience on this. But when you kind of find like, okay, I'm going to start with this one thing and I'm going to go all in, right? I'm going to build the website. I'm going to get all of the messaging and marketing and graphics, and I'm going to go and get photos done, and I'm going to have everything perfect, right? I'm going to have everything ready to launch so that I can do this business. And I need to have it, like, I need to look the part. I need to look professional. I need to have all of this figured out before I can launch it. If you've ever had this thought before, please catch yourself now. (laughs) But this was totally me too. This is what I see is we dive into that one thing so deep. And then what typically happens is whether there are fears and self-doubt and imposter syndrome that come up, and especially if you do not have the tools to work through those things, this is where people jump ship, right? So I see people diving into it and getting so excited and having all of their, what is it? I's dotted and T's crossed, right? Having the website, having the pictures, having the branding, like having everything perfect. Then when it comes time to launch, it's like you lose momentum and you're like, oh, maybe I'm not as excited about this thing. Maybe I should do this other thing instead, right? So you jump ship and you go and try something else. Now, whether you have everything like perfect and you're ready to launch, or you even just start to kind of dabble into it, and then you find yourself at that point, this is usually where multi-passionates get that term like flaky. This is where we get labeled as flaky because this can happen. This happens to anyone, right? We all have our own fears and doubts and imposter syndrome and everything, you know, come up. But if we don't have the tools to really acknowledge that work through it, understand what we need through that process to move forward, this is where we stop. This is where we tend to jump ship. This is where we start to become flaky, right? Or not follow through. So instead, oh, (laughs) so many things I want to say, but instead, I don't want you to dive into one thing and go all in and go really, really deep, especially before launching. Instead, I actually do want you to kind of dip your toe in, right? Especially because, (laughs) so personal story, this very much happened with me as I started my coaching business is I thought, you know, (laughs) it's funny thinking about it now, In hindsight, as always, but when I first thought of the idea for coaching, I did really want to help other creatives, other kind of artistic people, because I had my photography business, which is really where it stemmed from. I wanted to help other creative people be able to start businesses doing what they loved, you know, and I got a lot of imposter syndrome that came up for me that told me like, who am I to do this? I've only had my photography business at this point for what, like a year and a half maybe two years at the time. Like, who am I to do this? Am I good enough? Blah, blah, blah. Right. I had all of this come up. So instead of dealing with it, because I absolutely did not know how to deal with that at the time, 
And that was before I worked with any coaches or really did a lot of the personal development and other courses or anything. All of the knowledge I have now did not have back then. So what I did instead is I decided that maybe I shouldn't do that idea. Maybe I should do another idea. So instead I did, oh my gosh, I jumped from a couple different ideas, but one of them that I remember was taking my, all of my work and experience in HR and decided to help people like build their dream teams, like be able to recruit people and build their team and how to, you know, hire the right people and find the right fit and how to do all of that. Right. Because that's, that was a skill I had. So I started to dive into that and I built the website and I got all the messaging in and I created kind of the offer that I had and did all of these different things. And then I get to actually like launching and talking about the thing and realized I don't really want to do this at all. I'm not excited about this. This is why I got out of HR to begin with, you know, like I didn't want to do this. And that wasn't a fear-based position. That was like, this is something I actually don't want to do, right? So feeling into there's a difference there, but some of it was still fear of what if I put this out here and what if nobody buys? What if I can't do this? What if I'm not good enough, right? There was still a lot of that underlying still there because I still hadn't dealt with that. So funny thing in hindsight is of course, through all of these different ideas that I had, I ended up coming back to that first idea, which is really the one I was most passionate about. That's the one that prompted all of this, right? So I had to learn how to work through all of those so that I could do the thing that I was most passionate about. That took some time, right? It's not, sometimes it takes a lot of time and learning and everything to dive into that and be able to move forward and allow yourself to actually do the thing that you want to be doing. But there's some work involved that can definitely stop you and make you jump ship and, oh my gosh, take way more time and energy than you and and money. Let's be real. Time, energy, and money. Because then when I came back around to that first idea, I had to kind of redo a lot of the stuff on my website. I had to redo my messaging. I had to redo my package. I had to redo so many things, which again, took so much time, energy, and money. So I don't want you guys to do that. This is why I don't tell you to just choose one thing. This is why I talk so much against that, especially when you are first getting started, because that's the hard part is a lot of the times until we dive into it, we don't know what we don't know, right? We don't know if we actually like it. We don't know if we're going to want to do something different instead. I have had clients in the past who, again, like choose that one thing, dive all into it, get everything set up, start, um, really start getting clients and start promoting, marketing, selling, all of the things, and even like get their first client or two and then realize, I don't even like this. I don't even want to do this, right? And then you've spent so much time, energy, money, everything into building this out just to realize like, crap, I don't even like this. I don't even want to be doing this. This is why I highly encourage you if you are just getting started, especially if you've never built a business before. Don't just choose one thing if you are multi-passionate. So here's what to do instead. (laughs) That was kind of my uh, side tangent, but very, very, very important, especially for those of you who are multi-passionate and just getting your first business started. So again, going back to what I was talking about, like number one, brain dump that list of everything. Um, 
you can rank it, you can go through and feel into which, you know, some of these, which ones feel more exciting, which ones feel like you really want to do this, which ones do you feel most passionate about, then here's something I want you to consider next is I want you to vision your life. So I want you to think about like, if you had this business, if you were doing this thing, I want you to think about how do you want to be spending your time and energy? What do you want personally, right? How do you want to work? What do your days or weeks look like ideally, right? I want you to think about that first. And here's why. This is an example I use all of the time, but I think it just paints this picture so perfectly is that if you have this idea, I'm going to take my own for example, right? This was very much an idea that I had that I really wanted to start an artistin shop, right? Like a little um, brick and mortar shop with different artists, uh, crafts and different things that they make. I love those type of stores. And at one point I really thought about starting my own. I thought it would be really fun to have, you know, my own location, my own store to be able to meet all of those different like artists and creators and different things like that. I was really excited about the idea, but here's the thing. And again, this is why I want you to think about this first before diving into it is I knew a huge thing that was important for me to do of how I wanted to live my life is I wanted, I wanted more time to myself to be able to focus on my own health and well-being and get, you know, enough sleep that I needed because those were things that I wasn't getting in my day job right? That was a huge piece of like feeling like I needed to show up at work every day, even if I was sick, even if I wasn't feeling good and just push through anyway, because that was kind of, let's be real, that's kind of the corporate world, right? So instead, I knew that was something really important to me was being able to have time and space to have that flexibility to give myself more sleep when I needed it or to take care of myself when I was sick and give myself time off. Plus something that something else that was really important to me and my husband was to travel more, right? That was also something I didn't really get to do with my day job because let's be real, I only had, you know, X number of vacation days or sick time or things like that. And I couldn't just travel whenever I wanted to. So that was something I really wanted to create was having more travel and getting to, you know, travel, not even just on weekends, but kind of having that flexibility to do, do it whenever we wanted to and have the time and space and funds and everything to be able to do that. So I knew that those two things were really important as I was kind of taking this next step in changing my life and my career path and everything. So (laughs) here's where this alignment piece comes in, because even though I was excited about the possibility of starting up a brick and mortar shop and having this, and sure, you know, logically I could hire people to work there and, and run it and things like that, but that wouldn't be for some time. (laughs) This is something that I would have had to like really start on my own, like everyone does, and then build up from there, I would have had to be at that store, you know, depending on when it was open, Monday through Friday, or maybe it's seven days a week or six days a week, and maybe it's all day, maybe I would be there all the time. What if I wanted to travel that was not going to allow me to be able to travel, let alone take time off if I had to be in a brick and mortar shop. Right. So that's why I want you to try on some of these ideas that you have and also understand what do you want for your life? How do you want to spend your time, your energy? Um, What do you want your schedule to look like? How do you want to work? 
having some of these ideas because if one of those ideas is out of alignment with that bigger goal, that's not going to make sense for you. I still love the idea of kind of owning my own shop, but I know that with the goals that I have and how I want to live and my time and energy and everything, I know that that just doesn't align and that's completely okay, right? So that's your second thing is I want you to vision your life. What does your ideal day look like? How are you spending your time and energy? Um, what do you want? How how do you want to take care of yourself, right? Just all of these different things. Vision, if you had this new life right now, right now, what would that look like? What would you want from that? And then do some of these multi-passions, do some of these ideas align with that or do some of them really not align with it? And maybe you can like cross those off or maybe you can make a note by them saying like, this is unaligned because of, you know, X, Y, and Z. But that way, you know, right? So now you're starting to kind of narrow down your list a little bit. So now after you've done one and two, right? Having these ideas and now having an idea of this bigger vision for your life so that you know what aligns, what are some of these passions or ideas that make sense for you to explore? And I want you to write those down. So in the workbook, this also gives you a space to do this. So again, go get the workbook. This is helpful. There are extra things in here that I'm not going to touch on in this podcast, but I feel like are really helpful. So I highly encourage you to go get the workbook. But that's what I want you to do next is what are some of these multi-passions? What are some of these ideas that you could start exploring that do align with your bigger vision or your goals for your life and how you want to spend your time, energy, all of that. And then write down, how could you explore these? This is this toe dipping part, right? So stay with me. This is where I want you to actually see these possibilities. You probably at this point have like maybe a handful, maybe you have a couple. How could you explore each of these? How could you just dip your toe in? How could you test this? How could you go get a friend or a beta test client and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing can I practice on you? I very much did this with my first coaching client. I went to her and I said, I want to, you know, I really want to get into coaching, but I really want to kind of this side note, this really helps if you have a lot of imposter syndrome around something. I want you to go find someone that you feel comfortable with, whether it's a friend or someone that you think would be a really good fit being a beta test client for you and go test it out with them right? This is what I did with coaching. I took my first beta test client. I asked her if she would be my beta beta tester. And this is what it could look like. I was going to coach her for, you know, X number of weeks or whatever it was. And that helped so much with my confidence, with my imposter syndrome, being able to just dive in and do it, but also not have the pressure of figuring out the price and having everything perfect first, getting to dip my toe in to make sure, do I like this thing? Could I do this more? What what all do I need to do in order to kind of, you know, have all this figured out? I need the contract. I need this. I need this, right? But in order to figure that out, it's easier if you just dive in and start trying it. So go get a friend, go get a beta test client and start testing this out, right? That way you can dip your toe in You can see, do I actually like doing this? And what am I learning from this? What am I still afraid of? Um, What are still some of the doubts or fears coming up? What questions could you even ask them that would help give you some answers, right? 
so, so much here in this beta testing portion of things, but that's where I want you to start is start to dive in and test it out to make sure that you like it before you go any deeper, before you invest more time, energy, money, building the website, creating the social medias, doing all the things, right? I want you to just dive in and try it out first. Then more than likely you will have probably one or two, maybe you have more than that, that's okay, but you probably have one or two that you feel really excited about and want to go further. Maybe you did have one come up where you're like, I actually really don't want to do this. Or maybe you're like, I love doing this still, but I don't want to charge for it. Like there's something about it. To me, this is very much painting. (laughs) So painting, if you guys don't know, is another one of my multi-passions. It's definitely another hobby that I have always loved. And at one point I did kind of dip my toe in and try to like monetize it, try to figure out how I could, you know, do paintings and sell them on the side or something like that. And I realized that painting for me is so much more of a self-care hobby and something that I can just like zone out and enjoy and just play with instead of putting any pressure around it or having to monetize it. It's just something that I get to do and play and have fun with. So painting for me was something I was able to dip my toe in and try out and just realized it's okay. I actually love this as a hobby so much more versus photography, which, you know, I kind of do both a little bit of a hobby, but then also obviously I've had my photography business now for eight years. So that was something I wanted to go and do more of right? For different reasons. You will find that too. You will find some that you just want to keep as a hobby and you will find some that you feel really excited and passionate about monetizing and being able to do it more. And those are the ones that you want to dive into deeper to start building that business. So once you have those couple that you know, I want to go deeper with this one. I want to test this out. I want to actually figure out how to monetize this. Then I want you to start thinking about how could you monetize these things? What could you potentially offer? What might that package or what might that product or service look like? It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to even know the price or any details on it, but just start thinking about how could you monetize that? What could that look like? Just start exploring it with no pressure. And then again, going back to like the beta test client, if you haven't done that already, I highly encourage you to go and get at least one person to like test this out on and see how that you can test this and learn through the process of working with someone first, because that is going to give you so many more answers than it is to just think through all of these things without someone that you are actually working with, right? That is how you start. (laughs) That is literally how you start. Then, you know, obviously there's so much more into building your business and um, the offer or product or service, your marketing, what you need for your strategy or website, how to do sales, like there, of course, so many more things. And I don't want to overwhelm you by saying that, but this is the point is this is how you get started. And I want you to take all of that other stuff of feeling like you need to figure out the marketing, the website, the social media, um, your messaging, taking pictures, having a perfect logo or brand, like all of these other things that come with a business leader, you do not need to think about right this very second. (laughs) 
This is what happens as people get way too wrapped up into all of these details, thinking that you have to have all of this figured out before you even test it, let alone launch it, right? Instead, keep it simple when you are first getting started. Then you will build up and do all of those things. But you don't have to worry about that now. So this is exactly how you would get started. So taking those multi-passions, really working your way through, how can I start testing these? Which ones feel really good? How then can I jump in and test it? How can I monetize it? All of this, like I mentioned, is in this Monetizing Your Multi-Passions workbook. Highly recommend that you go download that. It is totally free. It is your resource. It is very helpful. So go find that and use that and then reach out to me. What is your next step? You know, just take it step by step. You don't have to have everything figured out today or tomorrow, (laughs) right? That will come. But how can you just simply get started so that we can start connecting those dots between where you are currently and what you really want? I hope that all makes sense. I hope that gives you such a great foundational starting point to get started and monetize your multi-passions and get closer to your goal. So in the meantime, keep me posted. Please feel free to reach out if you have questions that you are running into. This is something obviously I love doing with my clients so, so much. If here's my one kind of disclaimer too, if you are having problem with your time and energy and feeling like you don't have the time or the energy to even get this started, that's what you are going to need to look at first. And this is easier said than done, right? (laughs) This is something we are highly diving into right now in the multi-passionate mastermind is time and energy. Because another thing I see is like, great, this all sounds good. I can go and do that. But I just don't have the time or the energy to do so. I'm working all day or I have a family or I have this, that, and the other. And by the time I do have maybe a little bit of time to myself, I'm just exhausted and I don't have time to do it. I hear you. (laughs) That's the thing that you're going to have to look at first. If this is something that you really want to do, I want to say to you that there are ways that you can manage your time better and... (laughs) bear with me because here's what I want to say about that is I'm not, I'm never one to say that you just need to find the time. I am not about, you know, burning yourself out and just finding every free second in the middle of the day, like on your lunch break or an extra five minutes here or wake up earlier or go to bed later. I'm not that person. That's not the point. I don't want you to just squeeze it in. Instead, I want you to be able to identify where might you be leaking your time and energy right now. There's another tool that I have for this that I can link up into the show notes. So if this is you, if you're dealing with not having time and energy, I will put this in the show notes as well. Um, A tool in my system for how to kind of go through and identify all of this and change this so that you do have the time and energy to make these changes for yourself. Ah, without just finding time, so to say. So instead of just doing that, this is how to really reorganize your time and identify what are your time leaks, where maybe how much time you actually spending on social media each day, (laughs) or like little things like that. Or where are you leaking your energy? Where are you giving it away? What boundaries might you need to set? Where might you be able to um, needing to say no to people? to free up time? Where are you people pleasing, right? There's so, so many things that we could uncover there to help you really take back your time and energy 
instead of just find the time and energy. So if that is you, I hear you again, I see you this, I will link up this other tool in the show notes specifically for you. If you need help with that, (sighs) I have the system for you for sure, but it dives into all of this. And I know that there's a lot more there. This is, um, this takes a little bit of time, which is okay, but it's highly worth it. More than likely you are, you just have a lot of time and energy leaks in your, in your week, so to say, right. In your, in your schedule in general and how you spend your time and energy currently. So how can you tighten those up and make some changes so that you can feel better? First of all, let alone have time to actually do the things that you want to be doing instead of just spending time and going crazy and feeling like there's never enough time. So I will link that up. That is my my moneymaker weekly planner system that I have. So I will link that up in the show notes as well. Super, super helpful. This is something we are going through in the multi-passionate mastermind, like I mentioned, to help you be able to manage everything, which is always my goal, right? <laughs> to be able to do that, to thrive as a multi-passionate, which is totally what this series is all about, giving you multi-passionate tips. So if you have questions about this, please feel free to reach out to me, shoot me an email, message me, kind of whatever works best for you. I would love to hear where you're at or what you have questions about, what you're struggling with so that I can help you because I'm sure it's also helpful to everyone else listening, which I always love. Um, Go get the workbook, go download that free workbook. That is totally my gift to you. If you want to explore this more and really dive into this, you're really ready to to get your business started. You're really ready to go all in and figure all of like literally everything that I talked about through this episode and so much more dive into all of the mindset pieces, the imposter syndrome fears that might be coming up, um, diving into your patterns of why you maybe have jumped shipped before or haven't moved forward or have been quote unquote flaky, right? all of these different things, I would love for you to book a call with me and let's explore that more because whether it's working privately with me one-on-one and you're ready to like really kickstart your business, get out of your own way so that you can create that life that you really desire, I would love to work with you that way. Or I have other tools and resources that I'm happy to share with you based on where you're at. So feel free to book a free discovery call with me. Totally free. Let's talk about where you're at, where you want to go and see what can help you get there. (sighs) All of these links (laughs) are in the show notes as well as just on my website. If you have any questions or you can't find them for whatever reason, just reach out to me. But I cannot wait to talk to more of you and just hear about your multi-passions and where you want to go and really, truly help you thrive as a multi-passionate because we need more of us thriving out there for sure. I know that's what's going to make you the most happy, the most fulfilled, and really just create that life that you truly desire for yourself. So reach out to me. I hope you have a great week and I will see you guys for the next episode. Thank you for listening to the hashtag watch me podcast. You can find the show notes to each episode on my website under podcasts, as well as additional tools, templates, and resources to help you start and grow your business. I would love to hear your takeaways and thoughts from the podcast. So please leave a review by leaving a review. You will be entered for a giveaway drawing each month for a free coaching session with me. If you know someone who would love this episode, I would love if you could please share with them. And if you're ready to build the right business for how you're uniquely designed and make great money so you can live life on your own terms, I invite you to book a call with me. 
We need more business owners and multi-passionate souls like you confidently going after what they love and creating the success that they desire. episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. TED Talks Daily, I'm Elise Hume. If you've traveled internationally, you know this experience. Why does immigration and customs seem to take so long when you arrive at a new place? How is the process not simpler? Entrepreneur Carolee Hendricks has an idea to solve this. In her talk from the TED Monterey stage in 2021, she lays out her vision for a universal digital passport to take us beyond borders. You wouldn't put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros. So why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org slash teens. I grew up in Estonia under Soviet occupation in a country locked up behind the thick wall of the Iron Curtain. Back then, where everything, including bread, socks, and underwear, was a luxury... I did not dream about the open world. Because you see, some walls are so thick and borders so closed that even dreams and ideas can't travel. However, having lived in that level of darkness made me wonder, why are borders and movement between countries constructed the way they are? According to the World Economic Forum, human capital is the driving force for economic growth. So why are the barriers to global mobility so high? Why is the process so time-consuming, so dreadful and taunting, so very scary? And I know it's scary because I was detained at San Francisco airport for two hours just to get on the stage. It was the idea that the cross-border movement of people shouldn't be so difficult that sparked my inspiration for a future of frictionless, borderless mobility for all regardless where they are born. We are building a universal digital identity for cross-border movement, one where people own their data and can seamlessly relocate anywhere they want with minimal friction. One which would eventually allow individuals from highly skilled professionals to refugees seeking safety to start, track, and get approval for their immigration process without having to print out a single piece of paper. And we are not alone. Companies and countries around the world have started to leverage technology in order to ease the complexity of immigration. By doing so, we are expanding opportunities across borders. And through that, helping to build a richer world. In 2017, The Economist magazine stated there's one seemingly simple policy that would make the world twice as rich as it is. Open borders. 
Economist Michael Clemens from the Center of Global Development seems to agree as he claims that barriers to immigration place one of the fattest of all wedges between humankind's current welfare and potential welfare. But you know what? The problem starts from what we call a passport, which was first introduced as a globally required travel document during World War I, slightly after Henry Ford introduced the first affordable automobiles. Today, our cars have come a long way. We have come from Model Ts to Teslas. But our passports look and work pretty much the same way as a century ago. Besides the lack of technology, there was also a flaw in the way the passport system was built. The modern passport was designed by a Western-centric organization after the First World War. It became an object of freedom for the advantaged, mostly Western countries, but a burden for others. The irony is that today the passport doesn't even help those same Western economies anymore. Because you see, when in the past a good passport could indicate a person coming from a Western country with a good education system and thus useful skills, then in 2020 the World Economic Forum reported that the top three countries where the highly educated migrants came from were India, China and Philippines. Which, according to 2021 Henley Passport Index, ranked among the least travel-friendly passports in the world, ranking respectively 85th, 70th and 77th out of 110. So let's take a look at a recent relocation experience by a highly skilled specialist called Ibtehal. Ibtehal is a divorced single mother with full custody rights for her kids, six-year-old boy, Kenan, and an eight-year-old girl, Tamara. All of them are Yemeni citizens, which, according to Henley Passport Index, 2021 ranks 106 out of 110. Again, one of the least travel-friendly passports in the world. The Malaysian tech company that employed uh, Ibtehal wanted to transfer her and her family to their European office. The immigration authorities let her know that her visa would get approved, but her underage kids would not get her vi their visas right away. Instead, she was required to travel 6,000 miles alone to the embassy to apply for her visa. Then travel back to Malaysia, wait for three months, then travel back again, this time with her kids to apply for their visas, and only after that could they all go and live in the destination country. Stories like this are not the exception. It is a pretty accurate reflection of the immigration experiences today. And this is exactly the kind of hideous problem that I want to solve. And I know it can be solved because I have seen the Estonian society transform from one of the poorest countries in the world to an open and democratic one that not only functions but thrives as a poster child for technology-driven governance and innovation. One of the keys to Estonia's success in digitalization was the focus to build one platform called the X-Road, the backbone of digital Estonia. The key to it is one digital identity for each individual that allows public and private databases to link up and operate in harmony. Estonians can do everything online other than get married or divorced. Anything from doing taxes to voting in the elections is securely done online and takes about the same time as checking your Instagram account. 
The digitalization saves Estonia a stack of paper as high as the Eiffel Tower every month. On top of that, according to Siem Sikert, the chief information officer of Estonia, the digital signature alone enables Estonia to save 2% of its GDP every year. 2% of GDP globally would be $1.7 trillion. With that amount of money, we could solve world hunger not once, but 56 times every year. That's a whole lot of money being wasted because public sectors are not adapting to existing technologies. We can tackle that by creating a secure, universal digital identity where all the users need to do is upload their data and documents, such as passport, marriage and education certificates, into our smart system, which then converts that data into pieces that can be matched to relevant government forms in different countries. The beauty of it is the once-only rule. The user needs to add that data once, as it is then stored for the future use. The passport was created as a mechanism to move. It is clearly time to modernize that mechanism. If we could now connect that same digital identity to government systems worldwide, our system could act as a digital passport. And with a click of a button, immigration applications are created, submitted, and digitally tracked. Imagine never to have to fill any immigration forms ever again. In order for that to happen, we need government immigration systems to enable a simple integration, which would allow us to push applications and pull back the status. Today, our system is able to do all that beautiful automation, but to get that digital information to government systems worldwide, a ton of paper needs to be printed out, and a human at an immigration office needs to type everything in again. In Germany, officials are so busy typing in applications that it can take up to a year to even get an appointment at a time where Germany is experiencing a deep talent crunch. That is not just an inefficient system, not a harmless bit of bureaucracy. It is actively working against itself. Last year, through a small digitalization with Berlin immigration authorities, my team managed to shorten a process that was 90 days into two days. Think about what a person can do in 88 days. Your passport describes you as a resident of your country. We say you're a citizen of the world. A universal digital passport, one that would go beyond borders, will take us towards the world. We're crossing borders. It's not about waste of time or waste of resources. Think about these 88 days and how much actual life can fit into it. Thank you. on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
Wednesday, September 29th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Asit Sharma in the house. Good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. Glad to be here. We've got software earnings. We've got another new public company, but we are going to start with the stock of the day. Shares of Dollar Tree up 14% this morning after the discount retailer increased its share buyback plan from $1.5 billion to $2.5 billion. Uh, The company also said they're going to start selling more products at a higher price point due to, let's just call it the usual suspects, supply chain issues, labor costs, that sort of thing. Um, What do you think of this? I mean, it seems like good timing on the company's part because even with the pop today, this stock is, is still down for the year. Chris, you know, my initial reaction was, uh, it's not that huge a deal, but let's take it in context of the piece of data that you mentioned alongside, which is that they are going to be adding new price points above $1 across their Dollar Tree Plus format stores, and they're going to keep experimenting in their legacy stores with price points above $1. Now, this seems like a very uh, minute shift that a company can make. But if you look at Dollar Tree versus its prime competitor, Dollar General, its stock has outperformed miserably, underperformed, sorry, miserably over the last five years. Both companies have fairly vigorous comparable sales growth, mid to high single digit in any given quarter, which is pretty good for a dollar store outfit. And both have gross margins that fluctuate in the 30 to 32, 33% range. So, what's the difference between these two concepts? Well, Dollar General has always had a pretty wide price point in their stores. You can buy items for a dollar, or you can buy items for ten dollars. Dollar Tree, uh, uh, in opposition to this business strategy, has clung. To, if I can, if I can hit a very awkward sounding past tense here, has clung to a one dollar price point for a very long time. Now, it acquired Family Dollar several years ago to branch out because Family Dollar primarily offers a wide range of price points. Why is this price point business so important? It's because all of these stores operate on a very big retail footprint strategy. They're constantly opening up stores in rural areas, expanding to white space across the United States. When that's your business model, you want to squeeze every dollar you can out of every selling square foot you can. The problem with Dollar Tree historically is that it's lagged behind the sheer oomph that Dollar General brings because of that price point. So if you look at its productivity per square foot, it averages around 100 bucks per square foot in sales. Dollar General averages 30 to 40% above that in any given year which means that Dollar General is squeezing so much more out of its operations, enjoying better cash flow, enjoying better operating income. So I think the the one-two punch is very appealing to shareholders. They want to see that Dollar Tree can compete on a multiple price point basis and lift that uh, square foot selling percentage. And they like, frankly, the fact that there's cash on the balance sheet. This is a company that is now... um, back to an investment grade rating. It's paid down some of the debt that it had on its books. So I think they've got reasons to be pleased. And maybe this is a reason to not count Dollar Tree out and not call it a perennial also ran, which I have been guilty of doing over the last several years. 
You're not the only one who's called them that. And you reminded me of the conversation I had with Jim Gillies last week where the topic of share buybacks came up and uh, you know, it's something that uh, some companies don't do a great job of in terms of uh, timing. They're they're buying when their stock is really high. Um, you know, in the case of Dollar Tree, this this seems like a pretty advantageous way to use the cash on the balance sheet that they have. And you're right. I mean, if they can, you know, they they don't need to radically overhaul their pricing strategy. They don't need to sort of across the board start hiking up prices. Um, they can be very judicious in how they do it. And if they're smart about it, then a, a year from now, the, their numbers start to look a lot better. I think so. And your point is very well taken on the share price. This is a company whose stock has only increased by 25% over the last five years. That's a grand 5% a year in share price improvement versus Dollar General, which has increased by 210% over the same time period. Both of these are, are before their dividends. So, price return only, not total return. So, there is an argument to be made here that with a slightly new business strategy, the shares are undervalued relative to their potential relative to a benchmark competitor. So, they're doing the opposite of what many companies do, which is, as you say, to buy shares when they're too high and waste capital. Uh, This looks, on the face of things, pretty efficient. Warby Parker is going public today. The online eyeglasses retailer is doing a direct listing with a starting price of $40 a share, which gives Warby Parker an initial valuation of close to $5 billion. I'm not going to take any issue with how they're pricing their stock, uh, not when we've seen what we've seen over the last 18 months in terms of whether it's IPOs, direct listings, SPACs, whatever. Is this a business that interests you as a shareholder or a potential shareholder? It actually is, Chris. The older I get, the more I realize I've been tripped up by not paying attention to strong brands in the marketplace. And I think that Warby Parker has an extremely well-known brand among consumers. They set out oh, 10 or 11 years ago to reinvent the eyewear selling industry At that time, there were very few companies that were selling online. This company started from scratch, built its own supply chain, controls its own distribution, has a very reasonable price point. Their eyewear starts at 95 bucks for, for a pair of very nice glasses. And the glasses look spiffy. I have to say, you can't ignore this as a potential shareholder. Look at the products out in the real world. They've got a very attractive portfolio of eyewear. As I say, it's reasonably priced. It's a direct-to-consumer model. Not only do they sell online, but they have uh, now a a very big retail footprint. I think this is a company that potential shareholders may want to pay attention to. They are founder-led. The uh, co-founders are still going to own a big chunk of the company and a controlling interest in the company, so they can call their own shots. And the financials look interesting, too. Warby Parker isn't um, profitable yet, but on an operating basis, they're trending towards break-even, Chris. When you stack their numbers from 2018 to 2020, you see a lot of growth. In 2018, the company had revenue of about $273 million. 
in 2020, they had revenue of about $394 million. Now, they stumbled last year when everything shut down in the retail world. But looking at their numbers this morning, the first six months of 2021, they show a really fast rate of growth versus that softer period in 2020. Uh, So they've done about $271 million in revenue in the first six months of this year. You can extrapolate that out to uh, a pretty decent year that's going to be above $500 million in revenue. And as I said, they are trending towards break-even with that revenue for the first six months. They've only lost about $7 million on a net income basis. So there are lots of things to like about this company. I I wanted to ask you uh, generally, are you familiar with this brand? Is it just me who who's seen this out in the the real world and thinks, uh, "Wow, it's it's about time they went public." Uh, I am familiar with the brand. I've I've owned Warby Parker glasses in the past, and um, I I think they've done a, a pretty smart job um, with their physical retail strategy. Um, there's there you know there are a couple uh, nearby. There's one in Georgetown. There's um, one that went in. Uh, here in Old Town Alexandria, sort of on the main strip, uh, King Street. So I, I think they've been smart about um, uh, uh, slowly, methodically expanding their physical footprint. Um, I also think th- they have a, a pretty compelling story in terms of an industry that doesn't really get a lot of attention. I'm not saying it should, um, but. There is essentially a monopoly in the eyeglasses industry, or there has been for a very, very long time, which is why the price of eyeglasses um, is so expensive. It's why Warby Parker is able to come in um, with a product that is a quality product at a much lower price. So, uh, I'm, I'm rooting for them just as a consumer, as someone who wears eyeglasses. Um, I don't know that I'm going to rush out and buy the stock. I, I, I always like to see how companies do those first couple of, of quarters, uh, both in terms of their results. Um, are they delivering in the way that they say they're going to deliver? Because it's so much harder to be a public company than a private company. And um, what is management style? You know, How, do the, how are they dealing with uh, the questions they get on a conference call? Those are all things I want to see. But um, uh, a, a, decent, a decent opportunity for them, certainly. Yeah, I agree. I, I like that you mentioned that they are one of the scrappy underdogs in the eyewear world, which is, I think, dominated by just a few big conglomerates. Luxottica comes Luxottica, to mind. Luxottica, yeah, that's the, 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 that's the big one. The Italian conglomerate that has given so many small players trouble. Uh, they do have a virtual monopoly in this business, and through M&A, they've only gotten bigger in the past few years. So, it is fun to see an underdog with a great product. Um, and I'll ask you in maybe two or three years from now, Chris, so they say in their uh, prospectus that they've got a pretty good success rate with customers coming back. They've got a 50% sales retention uh, within the first couple of years of selling a pair of glasses and a nearly 100% sales retention within 48 months, which means that Chris Hill might try another pair after his Warby Parker purchase, but within about four years, he's going to come back and buy another pair from them. So, we'll need to check in uh, in a few years on that. Yeah, the one, the one uh, thing that just sort of made me laugh was what, I went into the store, and this is before the store in Old Town uh, existed. So, I was in Georgetown 
Um, I had my, I was wearing my Warby Parker glasses. There was just a little, little problem with the frame. And I thought, I, I feel like I need a little bit of an adjustment. So I go in there. Staff was very helpful. And the only thing that sort of made me chuckle was uh, the staff person um, uh, sort of showed me to a c- comfortable seating area where I could sort of hang out while she was going to adjust my glasses. And um, uh, right before she went back to work on my glasses, the last thing she said to me was, and by all means, if you if you want to um, um, relax here and, and read one of our magazines, please do. And I thought, yeah, no, I can't do that because you're holding my glasses. <laughs> I appreciate the offer, but it's kind of a misguided offer because I'm not wearing my glasses. But aside from that, great customer service. They uh, aim to please. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's move on to Endava. Shares of Endava are up this week after ending the fiscal year on a strong note. Fourth quarter revenue for the British software development company grew in the neighborhood of 50%, which as revenue growth goes, is a pretty nice neighborhood. Um, this is what you and I were talking about this earlier. I'd never heard of this company before. How did Endava come across your radar and what did you think of the results? Yeah, so there's this big and wide wave of digital transformation going on in every industry. We we all know that, but this digital transformation is split up between software that's being offered by umpteen companies and software consulting services, which are offered by only a few. They're the big giants like Accenture, and then there's a series of smaller companies. Globant is one. Epam Systems, E-P-A-M, is another. And Indaba is a third that I follow. These companies are really interesting because there's a need within larger corporations for companies to come in and help improve internal software and software DevOps, provide the glue between different systems, but also to help with customer-facing technology. And these smaller companies like Endava, which has a market cap of just $7 billion, help with that. I feel like this is a big playing field. If you wanted to construct a basket around this, I like the idea of Accenture. It's this huge mammoth consulting company, which can provide a solid base. And then you can add the other three companies I mentioned and play this digital transformation wave on the consulting side. I like Indava because, again, it's so small and growing quickly. One of the things I look at in this industry is how a company is growing its headcount. And the headcount at June 30th, 2021, which has got these numbers yesterday, is almost around 9,000 employees. You can compare that to about 6,600 employees at the end of the previous fiscal year. And you can see that Endava is really hiring people and acquiring smaller consulting companies to be able to meet capacity out there in the marketplace. It's a sign that they see a lot of demand ahead. And so this hit my radar screen simply because it's just often bewildering to try to sort through the different software as a service companies that offer so many solutions as companies try to get uh, more proficient in remote work, more proficient in fintech options, more proficient in customer communications. I could go on and on and on. It's almost easier to spend a little bit of time on this space between these four companies I've mentioned. So that's how it hit my radar screen. Um, These are sort of the big picture things I like about it. Just to mention a risk, which is actually shared by the other two smaller players that I mentioned, Epum Systems and Globant. The top 10 clients 
for Indaba account for about 36% of revenue. That's decreasing a bit versus 40% last year. But each of these small companies basically has the strategy to go very, very deep into a few large customers and then pull in new customers and gradually expand out of those concentrations. Um, The other thing that I want to mention about this company is that it's got a really great uh, revenue diversity. It's got about 31% of revenue in North America, um, 42% in the UK where they're based, and 24% in Europe. So it's a company that's pretty well spread out across some major centers. They need to get a little more representation in Latin America, which is becoming a hotspot for digital transformation. And I think they could expand their footprint in Asia. But there's a lot to like in this little story. As you mentioned, Chris, the the biggest thing is the eye-popping growth that the company's been able to generate. It's still quite small. Last thing I'll say uh, before we discuss this a little bit, it does have a high valuation. With that 50% 50% range growth comes up 56 times uh, earnings forward multiple, which I think is not too difficult to stomach when you consider that the the playing field, the market is, is very wide for companies like Indava. There is going to be work for years in the, the industries that it focuses on. For this company, that's pretty much payments and fintech, financial services, technology, media, and telecom. That's where they focused, and they could stay in those industries and do well for quite a number of years to come. Uh, two, two questions. Uh, first, I want to make sure I, I heard the numbers correctly. You said in terms of their top 10 clients, that represents 36% of their revenue. That Do I have that right? Yeah. Come back, Chris. Chris, come back. No, no, no. no. <laughs> just, just because that, that, yeah, I, I, that's I, correct. I, that doesn't seem... Like a huge risk to me. Like when you mentioned, sure. when you prefaced it by saying, I think this is a risk, I assumed you were going to say their top 10 clients represent some number north of 50%. I thought it was going to be one of those concentrations. But the fact that it's 36% down from 40, that's it, it, to the extent that that's a risk, that seems like it's a risk that's getting smaller. I think you've put a reasonable frame on it. And part of this is you you get so used to the trees when you're in the forest. For those of you out there who invest in software as a service companies, you're used to seeing zero concentration because a company is selling to thousands and thousands of customers. So when you flip over to a consulting business and see a concentration like that, it's scary. But Chris, as you point out, it's actually reasonable. It you know it means that they could still lose a couple, three, five of those very important clients and not take it too much on the chin. They could probably rebound um, with the rate of customers they're adding anyway each year in a short amount of time. So yes, thank you for putting a more reasonable layer on that um, and not running clear away from the company after I said that. Um, second question, as you mentioned, the, the market cap is around six and a half, you know, somewhere between six and a half, seven billion dollars. Given their growth, given the market they operate in, how confident are you that Endava is a standalone public company in three years? Because it seems like the type of business that a larger fish could come along and make a big offer to. This is a really good question. I always think about Accenture, which has a market cap of $206 billion and an enormous balance sheet. The three companies that I've mentioned are all quite small, although Globant and Epum Systems are slightly larger. 
But it wouldn't be difficult for a company like Accenture to come in with a stock and cash deal and acquire any one of these. Um, why hasn't it yet? It could be just lack of strategic fit and the fact that Accenture itself is already so entrenched with uh, some of the same customers, they don't see the need to get distracted with a smaller acquisition. Now, could there be mergers between the three companies I've been talking about? Potentially in the future, we could see one or two of these outfits merge. But because each of the companies that I'm talking about, again, to give you the names one more time, Epum Systems, Globant, uh, and Endava, because they're all founder-led companies where the initial founders still hold uh, some type of appreciable stake, uh, most would be uh, with this company, Endava, but to some degree with the other two, I think that the founders are very focused on doing their own thing and pursuing their own vision. So I'm going to give you a 65 to 70% confidence <laughs> interval that'll still be public in a few years. Asa Charmer, great talking to you as always. Thanks for being here. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.